and water, right? Literally anything that might sustain them. Like God knows that one of the quickest ways to remind his people of just how limited they are and how dependent on him they are is by removing food and water from them. And God follows through on that. Right? Well, when the Babylonians had Jerusalem under siege, the whole city was in famine. And so in Lamentations chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, we read, We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the desert. Our skin is as hot as an oven, feverish from hunger. God followed through on what he said he was going to do. He removed all food and water from Jerusalem. And at that point, they had no no kind of illusion that they were somehow self-sufficient apart from God. A second in verses 2 and 3, God says he's going to take away all the leaders of Judah. You can see them listed there, the military leaders, heroes and warriors, political leaders, judges, elders, the men of rank, counsellors, the religious leaders, prophets, diviners, enchanters, the kind of even creative leaders, right? The the, the craftsmen. God's going to take any leader from Judah that they might have been tempted to trust in apart from him. Any leader of any substance is going to be gone. So in verse 4, we see that one day uh, the, the leadership vacuum in Judah is going to be so bad that they'll be ruled by youths, by children. Now, that could be literal, right? Some of the leaders of God's people were very young. Uh, but most likely, as I was saying, that, that Judah is going to be ruled by people who are so weak and ungodly and just completely incompetent that they may as well be children. And the results there in verse 5, anarchy. Oppression, conflict, dishonourable conduct. In fact, verses 6 and 7 show us that Judah is going to be so deprived of leadership, so uh, poverty-stricken, that the the main qualification for leadership, the only qualification for leadership, uh, is going to be that you own a coat. It's just a high bar. right? This guy owns a coat. Make him our leader, they're saying. Uh, And notice that even those who do have coats want to lead. They'll say, please, don't make me the leader of my people. Even though all that's left to lead is a heap of ruins. Right? So, so that, that's verses 1 to 7. Right? God's judgment is very close. This is what God is about to do, he's saying. And we've also started to see the cause of God's judgment. It's the proud self-sufficiency of his people. So, so God's going to chip away at that, remove food, remove leaders. And that idea is unpacked even more in the, in the next section, from chapter 3, verse 8. Uh, through to chapter 4, verse 1. In this section, uh, there are really four causes of God's judgment. The first is in verses 8 to 11, uh, and it's the proud self-sufficiency, really, of the whole nation. Look in verse 8, Isaiah says, Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling. So so Jerusalem and Judah, they're on the brink of being destroyed physically. Uh, But Isaiah says, spiritually, morally, they're already staggering. It's like they're kind of teetering on the edge of destruction. And why is that? Well, look at, look at the text there. It's because their words and, in fact, their, their whole lives, their deeds, are against the Lord. Literally, they're against the face of the Lord. That's literally what that says. Right? It's like you can imagine a toddler who's kind of defying their parents to their face. That's the nation of Judah, uh, uh, the nation of Judah. Right? They're like a rebellious child who, who wants God to know they're doing the wrong thing. 
defying him to his face. And God does know, right? God says, the look on their faces testifies against them. In God's eyes, he can see the expression of their faces and it's clear evidence that they're guilty. They can't hide their sin. In fact, really, they're not even trying to hide, are they? They're parading it around in front of God as if they can just get away with it. They're as bad as the rebellious city of Sodom. So in verses 10 and 11, God summarises his judgment on the nation. And it's very fair, isn't it? Are those who are righteous, those who've, who've repented and, and started trusting in God and not in themselves, those people will be rewarded. Either they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. And if you've been following in Isaiah so far, chapters 1 and 2, uh, that must mean they'll be among that section of God's people, right? the, the remnants, the survivors, uh, who'll not only survive God's judgment, but will be purified and, and glorified by his judgment. More about, more about them later on. But on the flip side, those who persist in rebellion, the wicked, uh, those people won't be purified by God's judgment. They'll perish in his judgment. They've rejected God, the source of all life and blessing, so the just payment for their sins is death. So that's the first cause of God's judgment. right? It's really that the whole nation's messed up full of pride and, and this sense of self-sufficiency. And the second cause, in verses 12 to 15, is the leaders. We've already touched on the leaders. Here they are again. And it's clear from these verses that the leadership in Judah and Jerusalem is completely corrupt. Have a look at verse 12 there. Remember back in verse 4, Isaiah said that, that one day Judah and Jerusalem would be ruled by youths, children. Here he's saying that in many ways that's already the case. These people are already led by incompetent and, and childish leaders. Leaders who are leading God's people astray. And so in verses 13 to 15, God, God says he's not going to allow that to continue. He makes that very clear. Look in verse 13, Isaiah says, the Lord takes his place in court, he rises to judge the people. God's rising up in his heavenly court as the judge of everyone and everything and he is going to judge these so-called leaders. Childishly, as in verse 14, he states his charges against them. Look there. Instead of these leaders gently tending to his people, uh, pictured here as a vineyard, right? So they're supposed to tend to the vineyard so that the, the people would bear fruit that pleases him. More about this in chapter 5, right? But instead, these leaders have ruined his vineyard, right? It's like that they've burnt it to the ground. And notice that they're particularly destructive for the poor, like, like pretty much all corrupt leadership. They're plundering their homes. They're, they're crushing them, right? literally kind of breaking them to pieces. And notice they're grinding their faces. Right? That's a word. It could be used of grinding a, a rock into powder. Right? These leaders are utterly devastating the poor and God says, how dare you? How dare you think you could just treat my people like that? That you could devastate the poor like that. So that's the second cause of God's judgment, the the proud self-sufficiency of Judah's leaders, uh, who were largely men. And that leads to the third cause, which uh, is to do with the women, the women in Jerusalem. It's in verses 16 to 24. And in this section, God basically says, uh, you women of Jerusalem 
Uh, you find your confidence not in me, but in your wealth, your beauty, and your possessions. And so you need to know that while you might enjoy a little bit of glory now, one day you'll be filled with shame. That's God's judgment on these women. And it is addressed specifically to these women in Jerusalem, but, but don't think it's just the woman. Because throughout Isaiah, the whole city of Jerusalem is depicted as a woman. In fact, that's the case at the end of this chapter. So God does have a specific issue with the women in Jerusalem, but these women are just like a a sample, a representative of his issue with the whole city. Namely, that they put their trust in their wealth, their beauty, their possessions, and not in him. So let's look at the woman first. Look in verses 16 and 17. Notice that the problem with these women, it's, it's not really that they're physically beautiful. Right? The Bible's got no issue with physical beauty. It's that they're trying to use their beauty, right? They're their elegant necks. You know, I don't think these things do much for you, right? But elegant necks, fluttering eyes, swaying hips, right? They're, they're trying to use all those things to exalt themselves, to lift themselves up rather than God. And notice that they're described as haughty. That's not a word we use very much these days, but but haughtiness is about doing something to try and lift yourself up, to exalt yourself. Remember last week we had different sized balloons, talking about people's egos being like a balloon. Haughtiness is about really doing anything to try and puff yourself up. For these women, it's their wealth, uh, their physical beauty. And so God says to them, your physical beauty might lift you up for a moment, might get you a little bit of the spotlight, particularly with certain men. But ultimately, God's going to humble them. He's going to bring them down to shame, really. Look there, the shame of having sores on their head, of having a bald scalp, which in this culture really was the ultimate sign of disgrace for a woman. So in verses 18 to 23, Isaiah just piles on these descriptions. We don't have to go through all of them because the point's the same. These women are finding all sorts of ways in which they're proudly trusting in themselves, in which they're trying to puff themselves up instead of humbly trusting in God. So what's God going to do? Look in verse 18. God says, I'm going to snatch it all away. He's taken food and water. He's taken leadership. Now he's going to snatch away everything that these women would put their confidence in. And the result's in verse 24. At the other end of this unit, instead of fragrance, there'll be a stench. Instead of a sash, there'll be a rope. Instead of well-dressed hair, there'll be baldness. Instead of fine clothing, there'll be sackcloth. Instead of beauty, there'll be branding. You get the idea. Well, Whatever glory these women tried to create for themselves apart from God will be snatched away. Everything they might have been tempted to put their confidence in apart from God will be taken away and they'll be left in shame and disgrace. It's It's a horrible picture, really. I mean, imagine looking around the, the, the room here today. All the women, enslaved, head shaved. Not of their own will, right? It's a, it's a horrible thing. And so we come to the fourth cause of God's judgment in chapter 3, verse 25 to chapter 4, verse 1. And this is really about this whole city of Jerusalem. So we've had the nation, uh, we've had the leadership, uh, we've had the, the women, uh, and now we've got the city of Jerusalem. Now look in verses 25 and 26. All Jerusalem's warriors have been killed. 
Uh, so the gates of the city where, where the warriors used to come and go uh, are a place of lament and mourning. Uh, and Jerusalem, uh, once a very proud city, uh, the picture here is really of Jerusalem as a woman. She, she kind of slumps down on the ground, destitute, stripped of everything that she might have put her confidence in. Everything's gone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Uh, so in chapter 4, verse 1, as I kind of sums up just how destitute Jerusalem is. And uh, you can see there, he goes back to the women in Jerusalem, and he, and he says that with nearly all the men killed in battle, the women in Jerusalem, right, which in this culture were almost completely dependent on, on men, right, so that these women are so desperate that seven of them will be happy to share one man. But, and notice that they don't even want basic support from the man. They don't want food, they don't want clothing. Uh, all they want is that little bit of dignity, that little bit of honour that might come to them from being associated with a man. Even just one of seven women associated with a man, that's enough because their their sense of shame and disgrace is so great. So there it is. They are the causes, the reasons for God's judgment. And the central theme, as it was last week, the the proud self-sufficiency of his people. Of course, we saw back in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, that there's something glorious coming beyond God's judgment. And Isaiah finishes this section by taking us there again. In verse, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, Isaiah talks about that glorious future, the, the, the consequences of God's judgment. And notice in, in verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2, it starts with that phrase, in that day. And that's been repeated constantly in the section between chapter 2, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, but in that section, it was always a day in the near future. Right? The day when, when God was going, to appear, uh, was going to appear to judge uh, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And so if you can think about a mountain range, we're going to build up this picture. These are the, like the hills in the foreground. That's the day of the Lord when God's going to judge the people of Judah and Jerusalem. But here, as I was looking at least into the medium future, some hills a little bit further back to a day beyond God's judgment when God's going to restore at least some of his people to the lands. But ultimately, he's looking to the distant future, the mountains right on the horizon, to the ultimate day of the Lord when God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, will fully and finally save his people. So we've got these kind of three things going on here. And as, as, as he's talking about salvation, Isaiah gives us four pictures of that salvation. Uh, the first picture is the, this uh, branch of the Lord. Uh, we'll talk about the, the branch more in, in a little bit, but here uh, Isaiah is simply giving us a picture of how God's going to save Israel. I remember in previous chapters Israel was compared to, to proud trees that God's going to lop down. But here uh, Isaiah is saying God, the, the, the kind of fallen trunk of Israel is going to become a beautiful and glorious branch again. And that's a picture. And, of course, this image of a branch uh, does remind us of something very important about how God saves people. I'm not much of a gardener, but even I know that if I walk into someone's garden and I see a beautiful plant, a glorious plant, uh, the credit goes to the gardener, doesn't it? Not to the plant. But that's how it works. Right? Likewise, this image of, of the branch tells us that beyond his judgment, God will save. Right? He's going to replant at least some of his people and they will flourish again into this beautiful and glorious branch. 
And that flourishing will be completely his work, 100% his grace, because there's no way that a dead and fallen plant can replant itself and bear new life, you see. So everyone's going to know that Israel's life and beauty and glory is a credit to God, not to them. And that's exactly the same with your salvation. We heard it in the kids' talk, didn't we? We were dead in our sins, but God in his great mercy has made us alive in Christ. A dead person can't bring themselves back to life. A dead tree can't replant itself. But God does that in his amazing grace. A second, as I said, the survivors in Israel will enjoy a fruitful land. A bit of backstory here. You, you, you might remember that this land of Canaan was God's gift to the Israelites uh, way back in Joshua's day. Right? In fact, he even promised it to Abraham back in Genesis 12. Right? It, it's a long-term promise. So, so we've got to remember that. Right? This land wasn't just a patch of dirt for the Israelites. It was a visible sign that they'd been chosen and blessed by God. But of course, before Israel entered the land, in the book of Deuteronomy, God made it clear that if they lived obediently in the land, the land would be fruitful. If they lived disobediently, as they've done in Isaiah's day, the land would be desolate. So this promise of a fruitful land beyond God's judgment is incredibly encouraging. Isaiah is assuring his people that that not only will some of them be restored to the land, but they'll enjoy the fruit of the land again. In fact, the land's going to be so fruitful that it'll be their pride and glory. Oh, what's the picture there? It's the picture that that God is going to provide for his people so abundantly that they'll have no no need. They'll be completely satisfied. They'll be content in the land. Glorious provision from God. A third, in verses 3 and 4, Isaiah gives us the picture of a holy city. Right, we're zooming in from the whole land uh, to the city of Jerusalem. And of course, Jerusalem used to be a holy city, really for two main reasons. First, uh, because God, who in Isaiah is known as the, the Holy One of Israel, right, God had spe- uh, specially chosen uh, to be present in Jerusalem. Right, we know God's present everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. But he'd chosen to dwell in the temple of Jerusalem in a special way. So he'd made that place holy. But it was also holy because the people who lived in Jerusalem actually used to live like their God. They imitated their holy God. So we saw back in chapter 1 that Jerusalem was a faithful city. It was a city full of justice and righteousness. Not anymore. Not in Isaiah's day. Jerusalem is corrupt. It's unfaithful. It's full of injustice. So here Isaiah explains how how through the fires of his judgment, that's close, like we've heard that already, right? God is going to wash away the filth of Jerusalem. He's going to kind of purge them. He's going to cleanse Jerusalem of her sins so she can once again be holy. It's a picture of God's completely purified people living in in his holy city. The fourth image, verses 5 and 6, Uh, is of this cloud of glory, a a canopy of glory. Once again, backstory in the Old Testament. I don't know if you remember, uh, in the the Old Testament, uh, Israel's rescued from Egypt, and then when they're travelling through the wilderness, uh, they're protected and guided by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we know that that cloud was, was the visible presence of God. 
And every night when Israel stopped to camp in the wilderness, uh, this cloud of God's presence would settle down over the top of the camp and it would protect them. But it provided them. It was something like a a mobile place of rest uh, until they reached their ultimate place of rest in the promised land. Uh, Of course, the problem was that Israel uh, never really did find rest in the land. And now Isaiah seems to be saying that they're going to be kicked out of the land. So in many ways, it's like Israel's wilderness pilgrimage continues. And here Isaiah is saying that their pilgrimage is only going to finish when they reach the new city of Zion, Mount Zion, right? The new Jerusalem. We started looking at Revelation, right? This is that city at the end of Revelation. It's like the ultimate campsite of God's people. The end of the pilgrimage, where, where the glory of God's presence is going to cover the whole city and keep us safe and secure forever. Not just some temporary place, but eternal security in the presence of God. So that's Isaiah's massive vision of God's salvation. It's, it's the, the glorious consequences beyond God's judgment, because of God's judgment. And so the question is, much as it was last week, is what's what's the catalyst? What's the thing that motivates us, uh, that will enable us to enjoy this salvation, this glorious future? Well, it's what Isaiah said back in chapter 2, verse 22, at the end of the last passage. It's stopping with the foolishness of trusting in ourselves and humbly trusting in God. That's all you've got to do. So that's easy, right? Application, go home, stop trusting in yourself, stop being proud, rebellious, self-sufficient, humbly trusting God, glorious future. It's that easy. It's not, is it? All of us have this illusion of self-sufficiency. We think we can cope just fine without God. I've experienced it this week. I lost my voice on Wednesday, kind of thinking, how am I going to preach on Sunday? Uh, and, and it really, like it's sickness, it's one of those things, you know, that like kind of hits your sense of pride and self-sufficiency, you can't do what I normally want to be able to do. We all have this illusion of self-sufficiency. Right, so what, what's going to shake us out of that? What, what's going to show us just how foolish we are to think we can do things fine without God? Uh, well, it all comes back to that branch, right? the, the beautiful and glorious branch. Because perhaps you know that when God replanted Israel in the land, they didn't bring about the salvation of verses 2 to 6. That didn't happen through Israel. That only comes through Christ. Because in the end, it's Christ who is this beautiful and glorious branch. We see that all through the Old Testament, actually. You could look up later on, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. You can write that down. I'm not going to look it up tonight. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Zechariah 3, verses 8 and 9. Uh, there are plenty of places, but, but we're right here in Isaiah. Uh, so if you've got a Bible that you can flick or scroll, uh, flick over to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Isaiah 11, verse 1. <coughs> uh, it says there, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. Right, and if, you, if we had time, we'd unpack the verses following. But Isaiah goes on to describe how this, this shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, this branch, and then this kind of sprouting out of the trunk of Israel, the branch is God's promised king. 
sometimes called the Messiah, right? The, the one who's going to establish God's glorious kingdom and bring about the salvation of chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. I mean, this is who's going to do it, the glorious branch of the Lord. And how's he going to do it? But how? Is he going to transform a proud and rebellious and self-sufficient people like us, like Judah, into a holy people living in a holy city in the presence of a holy God? How's he going to do that? Well, it's Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, Let me read. You can flick over if you like. Isaiah 53, verse 2. Isaiah 53, verse 2. He grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. Is the language again? And like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Uh, verse 4, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. So, so, let me say, if God's kind of horrific judgment on Judah uh, isn't enough to, to shake you out of your self-sufficiency, if it's not enough to convince you that it's just foolish to keep trusting in yourself, that, that somehow you can handle life by yourself, if God's judgment on Judah doesn't do that, Isaiah says, what about his judgment on his son? His judgment that reminds you that spiritually speaking, you are so poor and wretched and destitute, just like Judah. That Christ, God's tender shoot, his beautiful and glorious branch, had to be despised and rejected and crushed for your sins. That's what had to happen. But I don't think there's any way you can really see that or believe that and not realise that your proud self-sufficiency is both foolish and incredibly destructive. The eternal Son of God ripped apart on the cross. How could you possibly say that you can handle life fine without God? It's the cross that's the catalyst for salvation. It's the cross that, that humbles us and shows us that we can't make ourselves acceptable to God by ourselves and we're driven to trust in Christ. And in doing that, we find tremendous assurance, as he uses Isaiah's language, that Christ died, the glorious, the, the beautiful branch of the Lord died, that we could be cleansed of our sins, could have our filth washed away, could have our name recorded among the living, not just in the city of Jerusalem in Isaiah's day, but in the new Jerusalem, the holy city where God will dwell with his people forever. So let's remember Isaiah's words, what he said to his people. What did he say to them? Way back at the start of chapter 3, he said, Take your eyes off yourselves. See now your Lord. Why? Because your destiny lies in his hands, not your own. Well, just as Isaiah said that to his people, I want to say to you, take your eyes off yourselves. You're not that impressive anyway. Sorry to break it to you, nor am I. Take your eyes off yourselves. See now Christ your Lord. Because your destiny is secure in his hands, not your own. Now let's pray. Uh, Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that you would do this work of humbling us. Uh, We pray that it wouldn't take uh, what it took for your people in Judah and Jerusalem for us to be humbled and to see our need of you. 
And we thank you, you've already done the ultimate thing to show us that in the work of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the beautiful and glorious branch who made himself nothing for our sake, dying the death that we deserve. Uh, we pray that we would uh, lift our eyes and, and focus on him and, and see that it would just be foolish for us to think that we were somehow had our life together before you. Uh, please do this work in our hearts, Father, that we might have great assurance in Christ of sharing in this glorious future with your people from every nation uh, living in your presence forever. Amen.